You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Monkeypox sounded bad enough, but now we have rabbit hemorrhagic disease in the islands. State agricultural officials issued an alert about an unusual die-off of nine rabbits at a Maui farm. Tests on one bunny confirmed it died of a disease discovered in nine other states. And this morning, we talked to state veterinarian Dr. Isaac Maeda about what's being done to contain the outbreak and what rabbit owners should know. What happened was there was a die-off of um, some rabbits at a farm in Maui. And the veterinarian, uh, a private veterinarian that went ahead and, you know, received the information, sent one of the dead rabbits to a diagnostic lab in Oregon. And that laboratory tested and came up with a presumptive diagnosis of rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus. Anytime that, because it's still considered a foreign animal disease, anytime that disease is diagnosed, testing laboratory, they have to get confirmation from the USDA. So samples were sent to the National Veterinary Services Laboratory, and they confirmed the infection with the rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus type 2. How far back was that die-off? That was in June 14th. Okay, but the die-off of the other rabbits? Uh, That was within a few days prior to that. Okay, so this then spread quickly and it killed off the rabbits quickly. Yeah, typically that's how this virus is. It tends to be pretty abrupt and acute, and you'll just have rabbits that die, you know, of a hemorrhagic disease symptoms. So what's important for us to know here? I mean, can this spread from one species to another? How is it spread? Well, the good news about it is it does not spread to humans. It's not infectious to humans or other animals. It's just rabbits and hares, hares being things like jackrabbits and stuff that we don't have here. It's highly contagious, and it gets spread just by contact. So, in addition to just rabbit-to-rabbit transfer, you could have it, the virus that gets excreted from an infected rabbit, get transmitted to an inanimate object, carrier, brush, uh, anything, feed bowls, etc. And if those feed bowls and other things are taken to a susceptible rabbit with the virus on top of it, they can get it that way. In addition, People and animals, if we're inside of an area where infected rabbits are and we subsequently leave and go into an area where susceptible rabbits are, we could transmit it on our clothes or shoes or what have you. What precautions is this facility taking to prevent the spread? It's under a quarantine order, so that means nothing can move on or off the facility without involving us. And it's also gone through an initial cleanup and it's going to be going through some more disinfecting and what have you the coming week. What we're going to do is monitor it after all of that's completed and everything is disposed of that's not easily, you know, sanitized. We're going to have to monitor the facility for, for probably at least four months. And do we know where this may have come in? I mean, was it a rabbit that was brought not, in? or Not at this point. And there wasn't a rabbit that was recently brought in. So it's kind of a interesting situation at this point, and it's under investigation to find out. Now, in the continental U.S., where other states have encountered this disease, USDA has also reported that a lot of times they cannot determine where the source of infection was. So, yeah, it's just because of our geography, um, you know, it's kind of a head-scratcher, right? It's not right. like somebody can just drive across our border. Right. But even, like I said, in those other states, is, there's no introductions of animals into places that have become infected with it. So it, it may be coming from something else. Not sure. Carried in by a person, carried in by objects, carried in by a whole lot of different things possible. Can you share, uh, you know, whether this facility, you know, raised the rabbits for food or were they just their pets? They were hopping around or, or kept in a... They're kept in an isolated area, and I suspect it's more of a, it's quote-unquote a farm because they produce other types of non-rabbit uh, plant type of things, but it, it, they seem more like they're kept as pets. Okay, and then... Uh, Gosh, uh, as far as what we need to do, if there are um, rabbit owners that are concerned, you know, I don't know, are there vaccines uh, to deal with this or any kind of medication? Yeah, there is a rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus vaccine license for emergency use in the U.S. It's made by a company called MedGene. 
information was sent out to accredited Hawaii veterinarians where they can contact the laboratory, you know, I mean, not the laboratory, but the manufacturer and uh, get the vaccine that way. It is approved for, you know, emergency use in Hawaii. So do we have it on island or does it have to be brought no, in? it has to be brought in. Okay, so at this point we don't have any... On island, no. On island. And so as far as best practices, let's say for just the families that maybe have rabbits as pets mm-hmm. and maybe don't live on Maui uh, or do, I mean, what's the best advice you can you can give? Well, it'd probably be a good idea not to have your rabbit taken to other areas to mingle with other rabbits, not to go and visit other you know, rabbit facilities or what have you, unless you're really certain. I would not have, for example, if you have a large number of rabbits, to bring any rabbit in. And if you do bring a rabbit in, to isolate it for at least you know, 30 days to make sure you don't see anything there. I know there are what humane societies, you know, people turn in rabbits and they may have them and, and they're up for adoption. So yep. what kind of guidance are you giving those places? Single, single person adoptions uh, probably okay because you're, you're just taking it into the home by itself and that's fine. Uh, I wouldn't recommend, like I said, mixing rabbits that uh, you just adopt. Unknown history or you find a rabbit, don't commingle it with other rabbits for sure. As far as then getting the vaccines, I mean, anything we should know about that? Uh, yeah, talk to your private veterinarian. And then just basically just good housekeeping practices. Keep your pet areas clean right. and clear. Right. And uh, I, I wouldn't have a whole lot of visiting. And then are there any additional safeguards that the state you know, ag department is doing, let's say, if there are pet stores or folks that are importing rabbits or hares into the state? There's an additional requirement for rabbits that come into the state that are being imported to have a health certificate done within 72 hours of entry. Um, and that's more stringent than you have for other species. How do we test rabbits? Is it kind of like a COVID test where you draw blood? Yeah, the unfortunate thing is that there's no test that you can do on a living rabbit to diagnose it. I mean, there are antibody tests you could do, but that would just mean that the rabbit has antibodies to the disease, and it could be that it was just exposed to it. doesn't necessarily mean it's infected. So the only definitive diagnosis, unfortunately, is through PCR testing, you know, like COVID, except it comes from liver tissue from the deceased rabbit. Oh, wow. Okay. So that so that type of testing, yeah. pre-testing, is yeah. really not reasonable because you have to put yeah. the animal down. Right. What about if there are other places on the island that may have had their rabbits die and, and we just don't know about it yet? What should they do? Yeah, go ahead and uh, contact the Animal Industry Division, 483-7100. Or talk to your private veterinarian, and they can get in contact us with us with the specifics. Okay, that way we know uh, the extent of if it's sure. more than just in Kula. Right. Okay. Anything else that you think would be important to stress? No, just to um, not to not to get too worried or fearful about this. So far, we're, we're thinking it may be just limited, and we're hoping it is limited. That was state veterinarian Dr. Isaac Maeda talking to us about rabbit hemorrhagic disease, which has killed nine bunnies on a Kula farm. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a small, remote, uninhabited island in the island chain, one that may have once played an important role in Hawaiian religion. It's northwest of the main islands, about a third of the distance between Honolulu and Midway Atoll, 
eight miles north of the Tropic of Cancer. In, 2015, in a 2015 presentation at the Hawaiian Historical Society, Hawaiian Studies professor, uh, now director, Kekueva Kikiloi, said his research determined that for more than 400 years, from about 1400 to 1815, this tiny and remote landmass was a ritual center of power for the Hawaiian system of heiau, or temples. Although it's barren and inhospitable to human settlement, it has dozens of important archaeological sites, enough that it's listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's also known by two names. For today's Backyard Quiz, we are looking for either one. Call 808-941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neweed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeweedHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Judith Valente, author of How to Be. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my spiritual conversations with Brother Paul Quinnen. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pico, a Kaka'ako botanical boutique with locally sourced plants for offices and homes, fresh island flowers, and gifts celebrating Hawaii's nature. Delivery available, PicoHawaii.com. Community groups on Oahu are organizing a mass bailout initiative called Bring Your Ohana Home. They're soliciting bail support requests from family, friends, and organizations representing those who are incarcerated because they're unable to afford bail. HBR's Kuvehiri, she joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. A bail reform advocate, as you mentioned, have launched this, this initiative to to help secure bail and, and re-entry services for pretrial detainees, so uh, folks who have uh, been accused of a crime but not yet convicted and are being held in jail uh, for some because they can't afford to post that that bail. Um, we know the routine defendants are, you know, presumed innocent until proven guilty in, in a court of law, and bail is the sort of key tool used in the courts to ensure that they uh, appear in court. Uh, but an analysis of, of bail practices in Hawaii conducted by the ACLU Hawaii uh, back in 2018 found that about half of the people detained in Hawaii jails are there pre-trial. And part of the problem uh, is that heavy dependence on money for pre-trial relief. This study uh, found that in Hawaii about 88% of the time you must pay cash or bond to be released. and with the average bail for the lowest felony in Hawaii at more than $11,000, bail is just not achievable for some. So this this mass bailout campaign is running for the next 10 days, so, or June 20th through June 30th. And uh, it's a collaboration of the Hawaii Community Bail Fund, uh, who we came across during uh, the arrest up on, on Mauna Kea, and then uh, Faith in Action for Community Equity, or FACE, and, and Oahu Mutual Aid, both uh, well-known uh, community organizations who have been advocates uh, for the incarcerated and recently incarcerated. So, and so they're looking for um, anybody who is looking to sort of get some sort of bail support for their family, for some of these detainees. Um, they still have a job but can't get out of 
can't get out of um, post bail to get back to work and may risk losing their jobs. So they're looking for folks who may want to get out but can't afford it. And then if anyone would like to donate, they're looking for donations as well. Yeah, that's what uh, I was going to uh, ask because I wasn't real clear. Are they asking yeah. for money or are they just asking for support and, yeah. you know, asking you to, to write to the governor? <laughs> That's, no, that's a good that's a good point. I, and I'd say all of the above, but the main focus in terms of uh, soliciting those requests for for bail support would be a sort of a main driver. And then all the sort of um, support services that come along with releasing someone from jail. So our, we've covered this during the pandemic, right? The, the lack of housing, medical or, or legal aid. So they are also looking for volunteers who would like to support uh, these detainees once they are uh, released. And then, of course, if, yeah, donations are always welcome as well. Uh, but, you know, this is all really happening as, as Governor Ige, David Ige, as you kind of mentioned there, is mulling over a bail reform measure that uh, passed earlier this session that's really garnered opposition uh, from the state attorney general's office, uh, the police union, county prosecutors across the state. Uh, House Bill 1567, uh, right, would eliminate cash bail for defendants accused of non nonviolent crimes, so allowing them to be released on their own recognizance and until their court date. Uh, for those who have been advocating for bail reform, they say, you know, there's like 20 exceptions to uh, this bill. So it, they're not entirely sure how much of an impact uh, it will have on those uh, being detained currently. But the idea uh, of cash bail reform, you know, is not, is not a new concept. It's something we've seen at the federal level the early 80s and then a number of states recently have taken on cash bail reform uh, in Illinois, New York, California and several other states. So Hawaii is trying to align itself in in that way. Well, no, you know, so it's not just the prosecutors who are pushing back. It's also the mayors, the county mayors, right? Right. So at the county level, you know, there there is um, the argument of um, the judge is already having this this power or this say in, in bail. They can, in any circumstance, you know, in any case by case basis, sort of say, okay, this guy looks like he can't afford it. We're gonna we're gonna uh, waive it, and um, and it it is done uh, to some extent, but it's sort of the general practice to to kind of just add add a, a number on there. Uh, when they, you know, as a condition for release. And that's something Governor Ige has until next Monday to to say whether or not he in, intends to, to veto. Yeah, we understand that there is going to be a, a news conference scheduled uh, to explain uh, his decision uh, behind that veto list. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it should be interesting to watch and see what happens with this campaign, you know, if anything sticks. But thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was uh, HPR reporter Kuvehi Hiraishi. You can read her stories at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. A female inmate's apparent suicide at an Oahu jail is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story today is one by Kevin Dayton. Right, who, as you know, covers jails and prisons for us, as well as the legislature, uh, p- politics, government. And uh, sad news, this is the second apparent suicide just this month. Uh, In a Hawaii jail, there was a suicide uh, on June 8th at Maui's jail. That was an inmate, a male inmate. Uh, This is the fifth in five years, by the way, at at Maui Triple C. But in this case, the the suicide of the young woman, 21 years old, parent suicide, uh, was at O Triple C here on Oahu. Uh, The the young lady had had a history of, of mental health problems and drug abuse, had been in some treatment. She also had repeatedly been placed on suicide watch. 
uh, but it appears, and, and Kevin's learning this from, from the family because Department of Public Safety doesn't talk about these things, right? They just have a policy of not uh, IDing people who die in custody, something that some lawmakers have pushed to change to make us more in line with other states. Speaking of cash bail, you just heard that report mm-hmm. there. But in this case, uh, um, DPS did confirm, in fact, that someone had died in custody on Monday. It appears to have been through uh, through hanging. Yeah, I mean, th- this is just so sad. I mean, we all know uh, that that's been one of the you know big criticisms uh, of OCCC, the facilities there, and whether you know they've got a system in place to be able to watch folks mm-hmm. properly when they are on suicide watch. Right. And, you know, DPS just can't comment on these things because they, they cite medical uh, privacy requirements. Uh, Kevin did ask Tony Schwartz, the, the spokeswoman uh, for the prisons and jails, about the mental health policy that you mentioned. And she defended it. She said it's sound. You know, they revise it as needed. But the information that's coming from Kevin's reporting after talking to the, fa- the family, and by the way, there's a there's a, a heartbreaking photo of, of the family outside of Queens Medical. Uh, this, this young woman, her first name is Diamond, died on Monday. And they were having a prayer circle uh, right outside. And we, we do have a photo of that up on our website. Um, she was um, one of nine children from a, a Nanakuli family. But back to what Kevin was saying after talking with the family, uh, we had mentioned that she had repeatedly been placed on suicide watch, but had recently been put back into the general population module that was on June 15th, just a couple days ago, and then was later placed in a disciplinary isolation area that's used as punishment for some sort of previous misconduct. It's unclear exactly what that was. Uh, And while there is an internal investigation going on uh, as part of uh, DPS, I mean, this is their, their routine, the family has said, you know, maybe we ought to have an outside inquiry here to find out what's going on. Should she have really been placed... Uh, in this isolation unit, and then should she have then been placed uh, back in the general population? Uh, there is also reports, again, Kevin's reporting from the family, that uh, maybe she had been picked on by the, the ACOs, the adult correctional officers there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this, the story is heartbreaking because it sounds like she struggled mm-hmm. with mental illness and then somehow got, you know, mixed up with drugs, and, and it just made it worse. Yeah, she was she was jailed about three months ago. Uh, she was awaiting trial on a on a robbery charge, and uh, in distress. We can't get the side from DPS, but you know, problems with prison suicide inmates uh, is a, is a serious one. And the state just recently settled a pretty big lawsuit, one point three million dollars, a judgment against the state, uh, and this had to do with a, a suicide at at Halava, right? The uh, the medium facility there in Halava Valley, uh, the prison, and that was for a hanging back in 2017. Some question as to whether protocol was followed. Uh, and, and so that's ultimately the question I think Kevin is getting at is, do we need to revisit uh, our mental health policies within our jails and prisons? Was there enough oversight of this young woman uh, who had a history of trying to kill herself before? Yeah, and, you know, and, and the story aside, I mean, I think we have to mention that the former head of public safety, you know, um, mm, committed suicide yeah. um, not too long ago. And, and it just uh, just a very sad situation, a very difficult situation. That yeah, Nolan, is Nolan Espinda. Yeah. And uh, condolences out to his family, of course. So thank you, Catherine. Yeah, not an easy job uh, running a prison or or, um, uh, or working inside or, or being an inmate at that uh, for that matter either. But thank yeah. you so much, Chad. Sure. We have been uh, talking to editor Chad Blair for our reality check today. To read reporter Kevin Dayton's stories, visit civilbeat.org. You'd think that with the polarization of our country, groups will be strengthening their ranks, but maybe not. There seems to be some internal strife that's getting in the way, and that's what we're talking about on The Long View with our analyst, Neil Milner. Good morning. Good morning. 
So, yeah, what did you find out? What are we dealing with here? This is from a very thorough investigative journalist piece by a guy named Ryan Grimm, who works for The Interceptor. It's published in The Interceptor. What Grimm finds out after uh, doing investigations of lots of progressive organizations, the organizations to the left of center, was that... These organizations, in many ways, some of the most important organizations in the field in climate change, the American Civil Liberties Union, reproductive rights organizations, are essentially paralyzed by internal strife right now. They're not doing much of anything. Now, I don't care if you believe in the, if you follow the progressives, you believe in what they say or not. This is a significant political development that has characteristics that should make us all worry about why this happens. What we're really saying here is that at a time when certain social movements should be working the hardest and should be the most optimistic about the possibilities of change or the most desperate to bring them about because let's say that the abortion decision comes down, they're not doing much of anything because of this strife. And what the strife is about is the strife between it's inter, it's within these organizations. It's between the leadership which tends to want to follow the policies and goals of the organization and the workers who tend to be younger, uh, who want to look at instead the internal injustices as they see them in the organization. To put this in plain English, if the American Civil Liberties Union or the Guttmacher Institute wants to talk about reproductive policy or wants to talk about how we continue to print the, uh, the First Amendment free speech, what they get back from their staff is blowback saying, we have to look at our organization to see how racist we are. We have to see how we're not being treated as a staff well enough. And these battles, which in some ways sounds like the kind of thing that I would expect when I used to do mediation and facilitation, are much more serious than that. And they're so serious that it's hard to find people to take over leadership roles. And these organizations are fundamentally limited to what they can do. People who work around Congress say, we're not seeing as much from these folks anymore. So are we just spending too much time analyzing the lint in our belly button? <laughs> well, you know, what is one person's lint is somebody else's blood, basically, if you want to look at you started the bad metaphors and I'll just <laughs> continue them. No, it's, you know, at the same time, you can see why it's, imp- it's important because it's significant. If you diminish it by saying it's just minor, you're missing the kind of passion here. This is really about, in many ways, the cancel culture culture. That is, it's what happens is that not only are these differences, but you can't discuss these differences within the organizations because if you remind the people on one side that we have these obligations to work toward our agenda, the other side will accuse you of being racist. The other side will accuse you of being insensitive. Now, I'm not going to be the ones to judge the internal battles itself, because I don't, uh, you know, I'm not seeing it. But that's what makes it so significant is that you have another side that is very, in lots of ways, very woke, that is very much concerned with the racial justice and reproductive justice, but in ways that are also very different from the organizations. So the Guttmacher Institute, which is a basically a, you know, a reproductive institute, um, that gathers a lot of statistics on sexuality, they have this big fight with their staff who want them to move more toward reproductive justice. And the Guttmacher Institute people say, well, you know, know, that's not what we do. There's one other thing that happens is that Uh, There is a battle over whether we should continue to recognize their heroism of certain people because it turns out that they have some kind of past that may not be so. It it sounds like the statues, it sounds like the schools changing names. So Margaret Sanger, for example, who was very important in reproductive rights, gets criticized. John Muir gets criticized. So it's, it's basic stuff. And so, yeah, how do we move forward then? Well, if I knew how we should, if I knew how we move forward, I, one, let's start with some fairly, um, 
Well, let's start with the hardest thing. The hardest thing is you have different kinds of generations and you have splits within generations. So when someone, let's say, and this is part of a bigger picture, when a bunch of artists and musicians write a letter, publish it, and talk about the need for diversity of opinion and to listen to others and to discuss, and, and the advantage of, of, of hearing other opinions, and you have other people running back saying, this is racism, this is unsensitivity, it's white privilege, and so on. Um, that's very hard. That's part of the that's become part of the culture. It's become part of becoming tribal and un- unwilling to listen. There are certain things that you can try to do, and I'll give you a quick example. One is what I call the Bernie Sanders thing. When Bernie Sanders was running for president, he sent a memo out to um, his to his higher level staff saying, "Don't hire activists. Hire workers." Um, this is not about you know you talking about bigger rights. This is about we have a job to do. Another thing, and these are small things, but maybe they they may be effective. There is an example in this article about a, a um, organization founded by two people, and one of the people who was kind of running the organization gets essentially loses his job. And he writes this big, grandiose letter about he lost it because he was interested in justice and in racism and the rest of the people weren't. The other guy, who was a co-founder, who was still very active, wrote a very nice and reasonably public letter saying, you know what, I understand why you're angry, but this is not why you were fired. You were fired because you're not doing your job because you weren't around very much. If you want to talk about this some more, let's talk about it. There at least is a model there. But this is, you can't underestimate how serious this is. And you have to remember that just because you're on the other side here, you don't care about progressive things. You know, there is this thing that's going on in the culture that's, that's very serious. And one last thing. One of the tragedies of all of this is that people within these organizations are afraid to use the language that best explains it because they're worried about what Republicans say. So they know there's a kind of culture, a cancel culture going on in here. Uh, but if they use that language, which happens to be a language that the right uses a lot, but also is descriptively pretty accurate under some circumstances, they're afraid to use it. So they don't even have a vocabulary to talk about this. So it just seems like I don't know. You know, we just need to acknowledge that, you know, we're on the same team here. Well, you, <laughs> you know? that's right. But if you've ever worked in organizations under strife, under the best of circumstances, that's very hard to do. And organizational conflict resolutions can, you know, put in a lot of hours and can make big bucks trying to get them. This, is, again, is that organizational strife that has an overlay of the poison of the kind of politics that's happening now nationally. That's what makes it harder. And that's why the, the normal ways of dealing with this as an organizational conflict uh, are not as strong uh, an anecdote as, antidote as they might be otherwise. I guess I, I just would hope that we look at what um, binds us versus what divides us. But Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, you and I, you yeah, and I get along okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome, Catherine. Take care. We have been chatting with our analyst, Neil Milner, in our bi-weekly segment that we call The Long View. Thank you very Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. In their fifth hearing, the committee investigating the January 6th attack will explore the ways they say then-President Trump tried to overturn the election, including by pressuring the Justice Department. Pressuring public servants into betraying their oaths was a fundamental part of the playbook. Join us for live special coverage and analysis tomorrow from NPR News. Beginning at 9 a.m. following Morning Edition. 
Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii State Federal Credit Union, featuring a home equity line of credit that can help island residents with a home remodel, education, and more. HELOC calculators at hawaiistatefcu.com. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We have got a little sandpiper for you today who is, uh, whose rattling call gives you a clue to its name with calls from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Xenocanto University of Hawaii at Hilo biology professor Patrick Hart has this week's Manu Minute. Akekeke, also known as ruddy turnstones when you're not in Hawaii, are medium-sized sandpipers. They're about the size of a mina bird. You can often see them foraging in small flocks, usually along rocky shorelines, but also in mud flats, fields, and lawns. Our birds in Hawaii are in their drab winter plumage, which includes mottled brown backs and white breasts, with a very noticeable black bib pattern below their chin. Their bright orange legs set them apart from other shorebirds you might see. Also, if you look closely, you can see a slight upturn in their bills, which, as their English name implies, seems to help them turn over stones in search of insects and crustaceans. Their Hawaiian name, Akekeke, is similar to their call, which sounds a bit like kekekeke. See if you agree. By late April and May, you might notice that most akekeke have molted into their breeding plumage so they can be more attractive to the opposite sex. They have a beautiful black and ruddy or red-brown pattern of feathers on their backs and striking black and white patterns on their face and breast. Our akekeke make a non-stop migration across the northern Pacific to Alaska, a flight which likely takes them three to four days. Like many shorebirds, they spend the summer on breeding grounds high up in the Arctic to take advantage of abundant food resources during the long Arctic summers. The males and females arrive at about the same time, set up very exclusive territories in the tundra to keep out other akekeke, and they build their nest in a scrape on the ground. Both parents feed and care for up to four keiki in the nest, and if resources that summer are good, and they manage to escape predation by foxes or jaegers, the juveniles will get together in small flocks to make their first trip to Hawaii by late August, with most adults arriving a week or two before that. Our akekeke are considered to be an indigenous species, meaning that they're found naturally here as well as other parts of the world. The worldwide population size was recently estimated to be about a half a million birds, and unlike many of our other native bird species, populations of akekeke appear to be relatively stable. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a barren island in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands that's believed to have been an important ceremonial and religious site to ancient Hawaiians, even though there are few signs of human uh, habitation there. People on Kauai believe the small island was a place of refuge for the Menehune after they were driven off the Garden Isle by the larger and stronger Polynesian settlers. According to Hawaiian Studies professor Kikueva Kikiloi, the site was a spiritual center for more than 400 years, from about 1400 to 1815. In 1786, the French explorer Jean-Francois de la Perouse became the first European to visit the island, which he named after Jacques Necker, a hero of the French Revolution. Necker Island is also known by its Hawaiian name, 
Moku Mana Mana, both of which are acceptable answers for today's backyard quiz. And congrats to Ilana from Waimanalo. You got both names correct. If you have an idea uh, for a backyard quiz to share, please write to talkback at hawaiipubradio.org. The nation's unemployment rate continues to hover at 3.6%. Here in the islands, the, number are, the numbers are higher. And while the numbers have declined over the last year, uh, the financial website Wallet Hub still ranks Hawaii as the fourth worst when it comes to unemployment rate recovery. It is not all bad news, though. If you are still searching for a job or a new career, there are a couple of new services available to speed that process along. The first was rolled out last week by the Hawaii Department of Labor and Industrial Relations. It is called the Hawaii Career Acceleration Navigator. The Conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Labor Director Ann Pereira Estacchio to learn more about what makes this job search website unique. What's your sense as to what the job market is across the islands right now? So, Russ, I do know that the unemployment rate is stagnant. April, it was 4.1. May, it was 4.2. Our initial claims are a little above 1,000 a week. And our weekly claims are a little over 6,000, which has dropped drastically from the last two years. So we know that our unemployment rate is dropping. Individuals are dropping off the rolls. But there's still a lot of individuals looking for work. And I know the state is doing a few things to help those individuals and to hopefully bring the unemployment rate down. One of the newest programs the state has launched is the Hawaii Career Acceleration Navigator. Can you talk about how it will help those looking for a job or a different career? Yes. So the Hawaii Career Acceleration Navigator, which we're calling HICAN, is for job seekers as well as those who are unemployed to search for career pathways. These job seekers can choose to create a specific high connect account to log on to this application or use their existing Hawaii unemployment insurance account, username and password to log on to make the system easier for those searching for work. With the word career in the name of this program, is there a particular reason why there's an emphasis on career? So these individuals will be provided with recommendations for jobs and include those that people may not consider previously and that offer better wages or career satisfaction. And it uses technology for real-time data, including career transitions that are successfully occurring across the state. So it helps those individuals move into a career path that best suits them. I tried the navigator. I, I created an account. I uploaded my Did resume. Yeah, and and it, it gave me some expected results and a few unexpected ones. Not not that I'm looking for a job, but I just wanted to try it out, see what it looked like, and it seemed like a much quicker way to be able to find jobs within my skill set than combing through that typical job site. It seemed like that's a much more tedious process, but this seems a lot more streamlined. Right. Instead of using those clunky government sites that, you know, normally individuals have to log into, PyCan yep. has that results in improved job searches because it's using data, real-time data that we have. And it uses artificial learning and machine learning in conjunction with job seekers, what jobs they had, what type of wages they earned, what their interests are, what their education level is. And so it helps them move through the career pathways for either the same career with additional functions or a brand new career that best suits them. When the state was thinking about putting this application together or when it was considering launching it, what did the state see about this program that it liked so much? So we were lucky that Ripple came to us. They approached the state to see if there was any way they could help us with our workforce needs. It was during the pandemic, and, you know, we were hit quite badly by the pandemic, and we wanted to do something to help those who were affected get new jobs, you know, find new jobs. And so this was the first-of-its-kind platform, and we thought, let's see what we can do with it. And I know it's only been launched maybe about a week. Have you seen any numbers yet as to who's using it and how frequently it's being used? I don't know exactly how many individuals since we've launched, but on the soft launch, 
we had close to 200 users. We had over 600 job hits. And we have individuals who have responded with our bot response system to give us some ideas on how we can improve the application, what would better work for them. And so we've been adjusting the application as we go along. So it's really user-friendly. It's been tailored to those individuals who are used to searching or surfing the web and gives them a new and updated platform to look for work. And even if you're not looking to just see what's out there, you know, hop on the site. It's really advanced. It's one of its kind. And I think that, you know, the governor had some great foresight. And it's just something that none of these states have ever done before. Thank you so much for your time, Anna. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time as well. And another service available to help job seekers is career coaching. And it's exactly what it sounds like, someone to guide and assist through all the transactional, mental, and emotional aspects of a job search. Oahu resident Koyu Wenti started her career coaching business this year after years as a recruiter for Southwest Airlines. She connected with the Conversations Russell Subiano to share more about how having an extra set of eyes and job hunting experience can benefit someone looking for a new career. Can you describe for the audience what a career coach does? There's actually several different kinds of career coaches. There are people that help you with career clarity and job searching. Those are folks that, let's say you didn't know what you were doing and you're like, hey, I just want to help people and I want to do something different from what I'm currently doing professionally. Career clarity is probably one of the hardest thing for job seekers to really figure out like what is it that calls to them. The one I do is usually interview prep, resume prep, and LinkedIn prep. So your LinkedIn profile, your resume, and your interview. And then there are some that are executive coaches that help you with just your communication style, your leadership style to mindset to how do you lead people to culture and development. Those are the three that I know are the most common ones. There is a ton more. You remember in the old days when people were looking for a job, they'd have to look in the help wanted ads in the newspaper. Oh, yeah. You know, look in the newspaper or just, you know, drive around town, look for help wanted signs in the windows. And I know that, yeah. you know, looking for a job, you go to a website like Carmina Jobs or you go to Craigslist. Yes. How yes. Working with a career coach complement the traditional job searching methods. We has a very unique ecosystem when it comes to hiring. I'll kind of back up a little bit and explain why so many things are on a website. A lot of these organizations that have websites, that is the fastest and easiest way for them to document and gather information about someone interested. It's also secure. So like, remember how we used to walk around with our resumes, with our home address and our phone number? That is like, here's your recipe for fraud. You might as well give people your social security number and date of birth. So that paper is a risk for a lot of organizations. So that's when we go to a job fair. A lot of times they can't take your resume. They'll only take your number and your email address because those are safe. So that's part of the reason why you're seeing an influx of online applications. And Hawaii is still a very unique ecosystem. Not all of our residents have a smartphone. Not everybody has an access to a desktop computer. And so obviously walking into a, a shop and applying for a job is really accessible for a lot of Hawaii people. And I think, I think that's never going to go away. I think that's still a great way to connect with our community. There are so many ways to find a job networking, you know, there's a lot of conferences and conventions, aside from job fairs, right? Another great event is going to volunteer and meeting people in the community and introducing yourself and saying, hey, I'm, I'm looking to go into this industry, or I really want to know what kind of jobs you have that maybe I could talk to someone about. And the worst thing anybody can say is no, and it's okay. It's like, not everybody knows if they have jobs available at their organization. What's the best piece of advice that you can give someone currently looking for a job or looking to switch careers? Man, so much advice, but get educated is that number one advice. 
first off, it's never too late to do a career pivot. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. If it's already in your heart that you want to change, that's the first step. The second step is figuring out how to make that change, which is the scariest step. But it's getting educated. There's a lot of resources online to help you get educated on a technical skill. You can take online classes. You can take YouTube classes. It's not a big thing. There's a lot of resources out there that are free. That's even the best part. It's doing the actual work of getting educated. That's the toughest. And then it's normal to feel a lot of stress and fear and anxiety. That's very valid, even for people that are just switching job titles or going to a different department in the same company. Totally okay to feel fear, but getting educated and learning that new skill. When you talk about education, it's not necessarily you know, going back to school and getting that four-year degree, it can also be something as, as simple as a certificate, but there's yes. other alternatives other than, you know, going back to going back to school. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, going back to school is always a great option if you financially can afford it. Right. And you can get some support and there's resources, but not everyone has that type of access. So there's classes that you can take from Stanford, like all these accredited universities in the last two years are now providing free courses and certification to people that, let's say, lost their jobs during the pandemic or come from a different type of economic background or demographic. You definitely have to do your research to figure out what's the best for you. Well, thanks so much for hanging out. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the invite. That was Oahu-based career coach Koyu Wenti talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. And part of that, Department of Labor Director Ann Pereira-Estacchio talked about the state's new HICAN job search website. For more information, check out the links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, we have to go now, but tomorrow we are planning a call-in show as we mark the 50th anniversary of the signing of Title IX, Equality in Education. How far have we come in the sports world? Join us. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, and email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.